You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, it would be good if you keep your Bibles open at Psalm 11 as we look at it for a little while this evening. It's a lovely psalm, and as I said, appropriate, I think, for this last Sabbath or first Sabbath day of a new year. Not difficult to work out uh, the sort of situation that the psalmist was in when he wrote these words. The psalmist, we're told, is David, of course. Now, very often we have no idea about the particular circumstances that caused David to write particular psalms. There are some where we have headings that help us. For example, Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance after his adultery with Bathsheba. That's what we're told there. And there are others that are particularly related to certain incidents in the life of David. But this one is not. And yet we can, I think, as we read it, we can get a a general impression of the situation that he found himself in. So I want to begin by describing what I believe that situation was. And then I want to ask three questions about this situation that David found himself in. Where was God at that time? That's the first question. The second question What did God see when he looked at this particular situation? The third question, where will this all end? And then finally, I want to try and apply this to ourselves at the beginning of 2022. What was the situation that caused David to write the words of this psalm? David, as you know, was a a child of God. He was what the Bible would call a righteous man. Now, that doesn't mean he was perfect. And you know, if you know the life of David, he was far from perfect. He sinned greatly at times. But he knew the Lord. God had called him to himself. God had changed his heart. He loved the Lord. And his general bent, his general direction was in serving God and and seeking to live for God. The Bible calls such a person righteous, even though they weren't. People like that were not perfect. Job, for example, or or Lot. Lot's described as a righteous man in the New Testament, and yet Lot made big mistakes, sinned grievously at times. Abraham was a righteous man, but he failed terribly at times also. David was one such righteous man. But he was living among wicked people, and the psalmist reminds us of that in a a number of different ways. It, It refers to the righteous and the wicked quite often down through these verses. Verse 2, look, the wicked bend their bows, set their arrows against strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart, at the righteous. A bit like Psalm 1, very first Psalm, makes this big distinction between the righteous and the wicked, those who know the Lord and those who don't. When the foundations are being destroyed, verse 3, what can the righteous do? Verse 5, the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked his soul, and those who love violence, his soul hates. And on the wicked, verse 6, he will rain fiery coals of sulfur. Verse 7, the Lord is righteous, he loves justice, and upright or righteous men will see his face. So you see this constant reference to the righteous and the wicked. It's a reminder that we live in a world where there's a war going on. I don't mean any ordinary sort of a war, but ever since Adam sinned, Rather, even before that, ever since Satan rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven, 
there has been a, a spiritual war going on. God and his angels on the one hand, Satan and his demons on the other. It's an unseen war. And most people in our world wouldn't think twice of it or uh, wouldn't even acknowledge that it exists. But if you understand the Bible and believe it, you will know that this war has been going on constantly down through the ages. I have a book in the study. It's really about the whole question of evolution. But the title of it is The Long War Against God. Ever since Satan rebelled, and then Adam rebelled. There has been this war. Mankind by nature has been at enmity against God. And God has been, of course, saving a people for himself in every generation. And that war is seen in the opposition of the wicked to the righteous. It's been seen in every generation. In our country, for the last few centuries, people who call themselves Christians haven't, haven't faced much outward opposition. But the norm across our world, down through the centuries, has been that Christian people will face the wrath, very often, of non-Christians, of the wicked. And we're beginning to see that more and more in our country today. The church is more and more marginalized, and the true gospel is more and more opposed and even hated by many. You know, if you stand up and, and, and speak about biblical morality, for example, the sins of, of homosexuality, or transgenderism, or, or other sins, adultery, or, or materialism, look at this last week or two. Our country has been full of materialism. And even professing Christians are sometimes sucked into it. But if you speak against these things, you will incur the wrath of those who are at enmity against God, the wicked. And David was experiencing that here in this particular psalm. That's why he wrote it. We see that the wicked were seeking his destruction. If you look at verse 2, Look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright at heart. The arrow was already in the bow, as it were, ready to shoot at David and his friends. Were these literal arrows? They could have been, as far as David was concerned, for very often he found himself face to face with uh, literal enemies, with weapons, the Philistines, for example, or Saul and his soldiers, or, or the Ammonites, nations around about Israel who, who were his enemies at times and, and would have sought his life. Or were they metaphorical arrows, perhaps speech, lies, slander? He speaks of slander, for example, in Psalm 31. People shooting their, their verbal arrows at him, as it were. Whatever they were. They wanted David off the scene, as it were. And things were at such a pass that we're told in verse 3 that the very foundations were being destroyed. The foundations of David's society, it seemed to him, were crumbling. That's true of our society, isn't it? Do you ever think that? We've lost our moral compass. Many, many years ago, I, I got some figures about uh, some things that were going on in our society. And I take it and I assume that you would agree with me that marriage and family life are, are at the bedrock of society. And some years ago, the figure that I had, that I got from somewhere, was that about 40% of marriages failed. 
I suspect there's far more now. And many people don't even bother to get married anymore. Years ago, I, I got a figure of the number of children who were in social services care, or at least under social services observation. This is children who they felt were a danger or being neglected or something like that. And it was three million in our country, the United Kingdom. Three million? And it's probably far more now. Last year, in London, there was a, a record for the number of teenagers killed by knife crimes. Did you hear that in the news just this last day or two? 30. 30 teenagers killed by knife crime in London alone last year. Do you ever despair when you listen to the news? You would be tempted to, wouldn't you? Because the very foundations of our society seem to be destroyed. And with David, there were those who were quite pessimistic about all of this. And they were saying to him, if you go back to verse 1, how can you say, or he was saying to them, how can you say, flee like a bird to your mountain? There were people who were saying, look, David, it's all far too far gone. There's nothing you can do about this society. It's just rotten. The very foundations are crumbling. You might as well flee like a bird to a mountain. Get away from it all. Give up. Jeremiah was tempted to do that. I, I love Jeremiah chapter 9 and, and the first couple of verses. In, in verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 9, Jeremiah says, I wish my head was like a well of water, and my eyes were like fountains of water, that I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. He felt like weeping for them. But in the next verse he said, I wish I had a lodge in the middle of the desert that I could get away from them. I, I feel like running away. He didn't run away. And neither did the psalmist David. The psalmist rather ran to God and took refuge in him. Elijah ran away one time after Jezebel threatened him after the Mount Carmel incident. He ran away far south, 40-day journey to, to Mount Sinai. Jeremiah didn't. David didn't. But there were people saying to him, no good, David. Flee like a bird to the mountain. Give up. The cause is lost. The very foundations are being destroyed. But he took refuge in God, in the Lord, Jehovah, rather than fleeing. So that was the situation. If you get a picture of it then, this righteous man living among the wicked who wanted to see him dead, and the very foundations of society were crumbling, and people were saying to him, run away, David, and give up. But he didn't. He took refuge in God. So three questions then about this situation that David was in. First of all, where was God in this situation? When the word of the psalmist seemed to be falling apart, and sometimes ours seems just the same, where was God? I used to say to the folks in Castle Dawson, if you ask the right questions of the Bible, hopefully you will get the right answers. So, did God not know what was happening to David? Well, of course he did. Nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight the scriptures tell us. Had God forgotten the psalmist? No, of course he hadn't. Do you remember what the prophet Isaiah said uh, sometime uh, before this? He said, or, or after this, he said, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on it? The, no compassion on the child she bore? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. 
God hadn't forgotten David. Was he powerless to help David in this situation? Of course not. He's the sovereign, omnipotent God. He's almighty. Did he not care about David? Of course he cared about him. You see, if you ask the, these simple questions, you should get the right answer. Of course he cared about him. Cast all your care upon him, the Apostle Peter said, for he careth for you. I heard a very sad story of a professing Christian lady who's going through a very difficult time. And I acknowledge that. I don't know the lady, but a friend of hers told us about this a few weeks ago. Her husband has Alzheimer's. And she struggles with him greatly, especially in the middle of the night, when he would be hard to deal with and, and he's still at home with her. And, and, and it's just a great struggle for her. And she's on her own with him at night at the moment. And someone said uh, to her, uh, don't forget that, that, that God is always with you and, and able to help you. And her comment was something like, well, where was he last night? Now, she was maybe feeling angry. She was maybe feeling tired. But had she forgotten that God does still care for his people, that God still is sovereign? Had she forgotten that? So where was God then at this time in David's life? Well, we're told in verse 4. Lovely, lovely words. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. That's where God was. Still in his temple. Still on his throne. Derek Kidner has written commentaries on the, a commentary on the Psalms and uh, referring to this, he says quite simply, the Lord is still in residence, not in flight. God is still in his temple and he's still ruling from his throne. Habakkuk said something the same in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20. I remember when I was young, the choir in my home church used to sing a, an introit from these words, and still it stuck with me. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Look around at the world. Look at the chaos. Look at how the foundations are being destroyed. Where is God? He sits upon his throne. He still rules. He still reigns. He still works out his purposes and his plans. And he still cares for his people. Isaac Watts wrote a lovely old hymn, and, and it's a long time since I've sung it, but it's a beautiful hymn. Um, Great God, how infinite art thou, what worthless dust are we. And one of the verses says this, Thy throne, eternal ages stood, er, earth and seas were made. Thou art the everlasting God, were all the nations dead. But what Watts is saying there in old-fashioned language is that even before there was a world, before there was, was a, a nation, where there, there were nations, God was on his throne. And when all the nations ceased to exist, God will still be on his throne. That's what the psalmist tells us. Where was God? He was in his holy temple. He was seated on his throne. What a comfort that is for every true child of God as we enter a new year. It's what Nebuchadnezzar learned as we began our service with those words from uh, Daniel and, and chapter 4. 
Nebuchadnezzar had been a pagan king, and God had humbled himself, humbled him, and, and given him a period of insanity, but then graciously brought him back to his sound mind and back to his throne. And he said, All the peoples on the earth are like nothing before God, but he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? That's the sovereignty of God. He still rules. He still reigns. No one can hold back his hand. No one can interrupt his plans as he works them out for the good of his church, his people. That's where God was, on his throne. Well, what did God see then? Second question, when he looked at this situation. Because he does. He sees all things. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Verse 4, he observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. A sort of picture in human language to remind us that God looks intently upon all the affairs of men. You know, if you're struggling to see something and you squint your eyes up and you look very carefully, it's that sort of picture. Now, of course, God doesn't have eyes, but he knows all things, and he sees all things. In the Garden of Eden, he didn't have to come down to see what was happening with Adam and Eve. He knew what had happened. As it happened, even before it happened, his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. And he sees basically two sorts of men, as we've already noted. He sees the wicked and the righteous. He tests all men, we are told. Verse 5, the Lord examines the righteous. What was God doing with David here in this trying situation? Well, he was examining him. He was testing him. You see that often in the Scriptures. God tested Abraham when he, when he commanded him to offer up his son Isaac. The whole book of Job is largely about God testing Job. And what a test he went through. And God tests us to see where our heart is, to see whether we love him, to see whether we'll obey him. And Job was able to say, after the test, when he has tried me, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. God tests us to refine us and bring us forth as gold. But he also tests the wicked and sees them. And notice what the psalmist says here about them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence. His soul hates. His soul hates. You've probably heard the phrase that's very often used, at least was in the past, that God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Well, that's not what the psalmist says here. Now, I know, of course, that God has a particular love for his people, a covenant love. I know that. But where people continue in their sin, God both hates the sin and the sinner. And he is the, they are the object of his fierce anger, his wrath. So that's what God saw when he looked at this situation, these two groups of people. And he examined them. And he loves the righteous, but hates those who continue in their sin. What will the end of all this be then? Our third question. We've looked at the situation that David was in here. Where was God in this situation? What did he see as he looked at the situation? What will the end of it be? Well, it will be judgment. 
judgment and perdition for the wicked. What a description there is of it in verse 6. On the wicked he will heap fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. They are present this particular time, persecuting David, persecuting the righteous. They have their arrows in their bows, ready to fire at him. They want him away. But they're facing judgment, and perhaps a sudden judgment. Perhaps a sudden judgment. Like Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the flood. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and suddenly the flood came and took them all away. And of course there is a picture here of, of that final judgment that all of us must face. But there will be blessing for the righteous. The Lord is righteous. He loves justice, the last verse says. Upright men will see his face. Isn't that a tremendous promise? It's not the only place you find this, of course, in the Bible. It's not the only place you find it in the Old Testament even. Psalm 17. I in righteousness, I shall see your face, the psalmist says. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, Psalm 23. Psalm 49, God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. And into the New Testament, you see that filled out even more. The very last chapter of Revelation, speaking of God's people, they will see his face. What a hope. What a hope that will be. And on that day when God judges both the righteous and the wicked, there will be no miscarriages of justice. There will be no mistakes. Not as so often happens in our society, in our courts. No, no. The judge of all the earth loves justice and will do what is right. Well, let's try and apply this briefly to ourselves then what happened or what David writes here. Sadly, we live in a generation and a society when truly godly people are few. That's what Jesus said, of course, about the narrow way. Few there be that find it. There are many who are still religious in our country, but I fear few who are truly Christian, and we are surrounded by the wicked, and it's getting worse. Let's not hide our heads in the sand our Western society is crumbling and becoming more and more antagonistic to the gospel and the Christian church. The very foundations of this society are being destroyed. Morality, truth, and honesty. Prophet Isaiah could speak of truth fallen in the street. He could say, no one calls for justice. You just have to listen to your daily news. And it's just one thing after another indicating the downward trajectory of our society, further and further away from God. So what are we to do? What's the believer to do? Flee? Flee like a bird to your mountain? No. Opt out? No. Take refuge in God. Don't panic, but take refuge in Jehovah. And be sure of this. Whatever happens to our country, to our society, in the weeks or months or years or to come, there will be a day of judgment. And God will deal with the wicked. And God will take the righteous to himself. So Christian friend, 
You know and love the Savior. You've been truly converted. Fix your eyes on the sovereign Lord and be confident. Whatever you see around us, fix your eyes on that day of judgment with humble confidence. Because the true Christian can look to that day with humble confidence and know that the one who will be his judge on that day is the one who died to be his Savior. Michael Card is an American gospel songwriter. Our girls used to like listening to him many years ago when they were still with us. And he wrote a, a, a lovely little Christian song, and one of the verses in it said something like this to be so completely guilty. That's what we are by nature. Given over to despair, to look into our judge's face and see our Savior there. That's what Christians can look forward to. All by grace. The day when we look into our judge's face and our judge will be our Savior. So fix your eyes upon the sovereign Lord and upon Jesus and Ask yourselves these questions as we come to an end and come to gather around the Lord's table. Have we fled to Christ for refuge the way David did in this psalm? Will, you be, will he be your refuge in the day of judgment? Can you read verse 7 here and, and with confidence make it your own? The Lord is righteous. He loves justice. And upright men will see his face. By grace, I, a sinner, am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And humbly resting upon him, I can look forward to the day when I will see his face. Can you say that? Let's bow together for a moment in prayer. <clears throat>